So I was reading Deuteronomy this week, which is just kind of a fun way to open up anything, right? And I was reading it in the office, uh, and so Paul's in his office, Jesse's in her office, and they're doing their own things, and I'm reading Deuteronomy, and I'm like, this book is so amazing. Why do people not read this all the time? And I just hear silence, because they hear me blurt things all the time. Um, Deuteronomy is awesome. It's just, it's so fantastic. And uh, Deuteronomy is, as we've talked about, three separate sermons given about 3,300 years ago. And we are beginning the second sermon, and this sermon is all a bunch of rules and laws. Blah. No one's excited about that. If you're new to church today and you're like, I, I'm, I'm so far totally lost as to what you're even talking about. What is a Deuteronomy? I don't even know. Take comfort, because most of what we're talking about in this, section, in this section of that book of the Bible, most Christians don't know about either. So you're all in good company, because if you open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 14, where we are today, I left my clicker. I need my clicker. You'll see at the top of that, a bold... Thank you. You're lovely. Um, you'll see at the top of that, a little, a little subheading to try to, to try to indicate to you what this is about. And you have something that probably says, if you're using what I'm using on page 158, clean and unclean food. And all of God's people said, I can't wait for this. I assume he must be talking about somebody who's not obeying the five-second rule, right? It dropped on the floor, you left it for 30, and everyone's like, dude, come on. Five, and then it's, and then it's unclean, we leave it. That's not actually what this is about. Just, I thought of that immediately as I was reading it. It's a mess up here. I want to, one of the big pieces of this whole series, like we're spending so much time in Deuteronomy, one of my big hopes is that you will love Deuteronomy like I love Deuteronomy. That, that you will read this book, and maybe not, Maybe not shout, this is so amazing, but at least say, this is kind of cool. Like if we could get to there, it's a victory. But in order to do that, I have to make an argument. I have to convince you, I have to argue with you. And in order for me to make an argument, I need you to pay attention for a little bit. Because it it, it kind of, that's how arguments work. And and you have to bracket your like, yeah, but. Can you do that? You, You know what I'm saying? Immediately, I start talking about things. Like, yeah, but, bracket, all of that. Put that in the yeah, but bin over here. And what do the teachers say? Like, listening ears over here? Something like that. So we're going to try to dive into this, because I think this is so important. The first word I want to put up there is worldview. This is something every single one of us has and almost never even recognizes it. Worldview is simply talking about what is, what is out there. What is around me? What is happening around me and what does it mean? This leads immediately to the next word, identity, which we also don't very often think about because we pick that up from cultural cues. Who am I? How do I fit into this world around me? So what is the world around me and how do I, how do I fit into it? The thing that comes to my mind immediately is, 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 is male and female roles. 
Because you were raised in a house where you learned by watching your dad or lack of dad what a, what a man does. You also learned from that situation what a mom does. And if you've been married, you bring that in thinking, well, guys don't wash dishes. My mom always washed dishes. And then you get married to a beautiful 20-year-old and she says, buddy, you better get in there and wash some dishes. There's a clash of the way we understood the world and the way we identified ourselves in the world. You, everybody with me? Especially you married people. At least I'm speaking a language that you understand. We do... <laughs> Colin's doing dishes tonight, isn't he? It's all right. That's all right. I support. I do dishes. I, she'll, she'll testify. And so we have, this, we, have this, we have this thing that's going on. We have a worldview. We have how we fit in the world. And this, of course, then applying that to the dishes comes down to practices or lifestyle. What is it that you do? How do I respond? Most of the time, we just live here, never thinking about consciously here or here. We just react. A situation happens, you react to it. Your wife says, man, there's a lot of dirty dishes in that kitchen. And you don't think, well, how do I fit within this marriage? And How does that fit in with my larger view about how men and women function in society? You just say, well, I hope someone does them. (laughs) We've we've run into an impasse here, haven't we? We just just live here, but I I want you, you you have to, if you want to get jazzed about Deuteronomy, and I know you all want to get jazzed about Deuteronomy, you have to live here. Because if you live here, you're going to be like unclean food, schmunklean food, right? It's not going to mean anything to you. But you have to see this is much broader, much, much bigger than what's, what's happening here. So, so how does all of this, how does this plug in? In fact, let me use, let me use another, another illustration. When I work late, if I happen to be, uh, or, or happen anywhere late, and it's dark outside, I park my car willy-nilly. I just wanted to say willy-nilly. I haven't said that today. I, I want, I just, wherever I want to park, I park. And if I'm in a bad neighborhood, I might, I might look around. But likely not. It's dark outside, and I move from the building I'm in to the car, and I don't think about it. My wife thinks about it. She makes sure she parks close to the building or underneath the streetlight. She makes sure she has her keys ready to go, and she is scanning. She is looking. Right? Why? Because we both, we both have the same worldview, don't we? We both believe that it is a dangerous world out there, and there are bad people out there who want to do bad, thing to innocent, bad things to innocent people, right? But our identity is completely different. I'm not worried about being attacked. She is. Our place in the world is different. Our worldview is the same. But because our identity is different, our practices are different. You see? And we never think about that. Like she, I'm sure Laura doesn't. I certainly don't think Oh, well, you know, what's my identity? I happen to be this gender, and I happen to live in a world that... No, we just do what we do. We just practice. We just live. What I want you to do is to, to think about this book and its broader context. What is God doing? So what does this have to do with Deuteronomy? Absolutely everything. It has absolutely everything to do with everything in the Bible, in fact. Let me prove it to you with the New Testament, places where we aren't talking as much about unclean food. We have 2 Corinthians 5, 15 through 17, and this text says this, 
From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh or according to what we see. Therefore, if someone, anyone, is in Christ, there is what? New creation. Why? Because the old is past or passing away, and the new has come, and so my way of seeing people, things, everything out there has now shifted. I now have a new worldview. Now, how does that plug into the next text? All about identity. Paul says this in another place. For I have been crucified with Christ, which is to die. Like, you get that, right? People don't survive crucifixion. Like, this is death. I have died with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So I no longer live according to the flesh. So in the, in the other verse we saw, we don't view the world according to the flesh. And in this verse, we no longer live according to the flesh. Why? Because I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. My worldview has changed. My identity within that world has changed. And now something new happens. The practices of my life shift as well. They change. And that my friends, is what Deuteronomy is all about. And remember with me, Israel was enslaved in Egypt, but don't just think about slavery and and all of the, 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 the negative trappings. They lived in a culture, an Egyptian culture. They had Egyptian language, they had Egyptian pictures, they had Egyptian movies, they had Egyptian music, they had Egyptian social media. They had Egyptian kings. They had Egyptian philosophy. They had all that it was to be Egyptian all around them all the time. And God takes them to where? The middle of nowhere and begins feeding them laws. And if you stay back here, back there, if we stay right here with the laws and we don't see that what God is doing is building a new people, we miss it. God is building a new culture in Israel. So, let's get back to where I was. Here we go. Look at your text. There in Deuteronomy 14, 1 through, uh, I'll read the first two verses. We see very familiar territory, things that we've probably heard before. It says, you are sons of God, sons and daughters of God, of the Lord your God. You shall not... Let's stop there. Sons and daughters, we've, we've heard that before. Children of God, that sort of echoes throughout all of Scripture, right? You're, you're all familiar with this? And we all, because maybe many of you, if you didn't grow up in church, maybe that does sound weird to you, but if you kind of grew up around a Christian atmosphere or family or something like that, sons of God or daughters of God, I mean, there's, I'm sure there's like princess Bibles, daughters of God Bibles. You know, I mean, we, we, we're sort of used to that language, but that was a very specific language in the ancient world. Like, if you were a son of God, you were something more like, more like, you know, Hercules. I mean, look at that. That looks like, I mean, look at that hair. Those armbands are definitely godly. Like, that's some serious arm. I mean, we, we would think of, they imagined something like this. Something Strong, something mighty, something beautiful. If you're a son of the God, literally you're the king. You're, you're a, a, a superhuman. You are elite. Which is why there's this wonderful passage in the New Testament where Paul says, not many of you were wise by human standards. Like, not many of you are PhDs. Not many of you are CEOs. Not many of you are, are like these really important people. And yet God chose you to be his sons and daughters. 
There's a scandal of the drama. Maybe we, we get so used to it as church people, we lose kind of the scandal of the drama. This is a drama. And what, and what God has done is he stepped into this story and he chooses this, this people and he pulls them out of the greatest, most beautiful, I mean, he pulls them out of the America of the ancient world and says, I'm going to take you, I'm going to plant you, and I'm going to remake you. Why? The text says in verse Two, if you kind of jump into the middle of it there, the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Like, when you got a treasured possession, animal, maybe a dog or a daughter or a golden, I don't know, whatever it is that you treasure, something in treasured possession. Out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth, therefore, he says, you shall not cut yourselves Back up to verse 1. Or make any baldness on your forehead for the dead. And immediately all of God's people tuned out. Because when was the last time you were in a funeral? If you've been to a funeral, anybody been to a funeral? Ever? Wow. Some of you guys have lived really privileged lives. When did the minister, after you know reading Psalm 23 in a stirring rendition, maybe a solo of amazing grace, said, all right, everybody pull out your Swiss Army knives. Let's get to cutting the Gillettes are up front. We're ready to shake. I mean, this is, this is nonsense to us. We're like, that's not a situation I will ever find myself in. I, I don't think. I mean, it's a strange world out there, so I, I won't say never, but it is unlikely that that is ever going to happen to you. It was fascinating about it is that we can read between the lines. We don't actually know a ton about what was transpiring in the culture around them, but, but we know from some, a couple of ancient texts that what the practice was is that, and this is rooted in with the practices of the gods, but they would take knives out and gash their arm. Like their mourning was to, to, to mortify their flesh and to bleed, to cut themselves and to deface their, their selves, to, to shave their heads. And their mourning was so intense, it was so visceral, it was so bloody, Isn't it fascinating that God says, that is not how you mourn. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isn't it interesting that he says that long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead? The the way God is shaping his people is directed toward life. But that's another sermon. So, What's interesting here for us is to say, well, yes, there's this practice here that we, we aren't going to deal with that cutting. We're not going to have to deal with shaving our heads. These, these are not things that modern funerals, your, your friend uh, Zimmerman the Moabite dies, and you go to his funeral down the road, your neighbor, uh, you're not going to run into this. But the identity and the worldview remain. Do you see it in the text? You are the sons and daughters of the Lord your God. Because he has called you out of those other peoples. And he has made or is making of you a treasured possession. The identity, the worldview, all of that's right there. I love that. That changes everything about how we encounter these texts. That might seem sort of bizarre and foreign to us. And it doesn't get more bizarre or foreign to us than verse 3. So let's look at our Bibles. You shall not eat any abomination, anything unclean, Brussels sprouts come to mind. I know, somebody booed Brussels sprouts, that's right. I actually don't, 
I don't, I've never had a Brussels sprout. I don't even know. I just, people laugh about that stuff. I don't know. I can't think of anything I hate. Anyway, doesn't matter. These are the animals you shall not eat, or that you may eat, sorry. I already went to the thou shall not. You may eat the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, the mountain sheep. Thank you, Jesus, for the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has a hoof that's cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet those that chew the cud and have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel. I, n- no worries there. The hair, far too cute, right? Until they're in soup, and then it's... The rock badger, I don't know what that is. Because they chew the cud, but do not part the hoof and are unclean for you. And the pig, that one... That's tough, right? That's tough. Because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not, t- you shall not even touch a dead you know, plate of deliciousness. Of all that are in the waters, you may eat of these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. Whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds... Just note right now, I have already read more of Deuteronomy than you've ever heard in any sermon, right? You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones you shall not eat. The eagle, that is punishable by a fine. These are a national treasure. No eagle eating. The bearded vulture, because it will eat you. I mean, I'm looking these things up because I don't know. I didn't live in the ancient Near East, so I'm not sure what all these things are, but if I saw them in my backyard, I would run. The kite, uh, the falcon of any kind, you know, no falcons are to be eaten. We need some of them to save the world. Ravens. Teen Titan Go fans, anyone? Yes. Yes, yes. I didn't hear the comment, but I'm just going to say you affirmed me, so thank you. Uh, Ostriches, because they are the most dangerous bird so far. Really big bird. Part of what God is doing through this, just to kind of jump ahead into the application bit, uh, that God is protecting his people. Many of these are dangerous uh, without, like, guns. Like, this is a gunless society. We get that, right? Like, you're, you're, you're running this thing down and, like, knifing it or shooting it with a bow or something like that. So, you know, but also, when you, when you are eating things that scavenge and there's more chances of disease and this is, like, also a, a pre-antibiotic like, society... Some of this is just like God's really looking out for his people. And to, to disobey God it isn't just to say, well, God, I don't care what you say, but it's to, to really take your life into your own hands in some ways. Um, anyway, back to the ostrich. Where was I? Ostrich. Ah, the night hawk, the seagull. You may kill the seagull 
if the seagull tries to take your ice cream, but you may, you may not eat the seagull. Eating the seagull, no bueno. Uh, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, and this guy is just, scares me. He's like black death eyes. If I, it just, and maybe it's because it's kind of alien-y. I don't know. Anyway, barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the cormorant, the stork, and any passengers with the stork. Just to, just to put it out there. Uh, the heron, the hoopy, the bat, or the man bat which is what that is. I, I had to use Batman because Batman, man, bat, like you. Uh, any, uh, so, uh, all, and all winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. I hate these things. Man. Um, so congratulations. Thus far, you've made it through probably more of those lists than you've ever made it through. I, I kind of made it a little bit fun. But uh, I think what we tend to do when we read these texts is we just like skip right, you just skip right over that. Like, okay, where is something interesting happened? Okay, we're, we're done here. But I want you to stop for a second and just wonder at the fact that in the ancient world, where writing was costly, difficult, and there was only a small portion of people that could do it. There is a list of like 25,000 birds here that you shall not eat. Why? I mean, there's just a moment to stop and say, well, that's a really strange thing to do. And that for 3,300 years, Christians have called this the word of God. God said this. Now we have to pause for a second And ask the question, like, is it because if you eat a rock badger, God is so offended? Like, how dare you eat that rock badger? You are consigned to the lowest levels of hell for eating that rock. I mean, that doesn't, that, surely we can all reason together and say, there's got to be something more at work here. Something more at work here than just the rock badger is like my favorite animal. And so I don't want you to eat that one. Any other kind of badger, fair game, rock badger, no. Right? That, that, doesn't, that doesn't compute. God's after something bigger. And, and we get that if we rewind all the way back to the beginning of the text. It identifies you. And it identifies the world. And flowing from that worldview of, of a God who has created all things and a God who has taken you out of a place where you were a part of a culture and a part of a world, and he has pulled you to himself as a treasured possession, and you are now the sons and daughters of God. He has now given you the worldview, identified the worldview, and now he's laying out the practices. How do I live now in light of the fact that there is a God? And God makes it easy. You go to your neighbor, Travis, what's your neighbor's name? What? Mike. You go to Mike's house for a barbecue, and Mike's serving rock badger. <laughs> Barbecued rock badger. Not the bearded vulture. 
He was smart and stayed away from that one. The rock badger just sat there looking at him, so he clubbed it. And he grilled it. Travis is uh, one of God's treasured possessions, and, and he goes over to Mike's house, Zimmerman. I like that name, Mike Zimmerman. Sure, yeah, okay. And, uh, and Mike says, hey, I got, uh, I, I've grilled it. And, and uh, Travis says, that looks kind of funky. What is that? And he says, rock badger. I'm just laughing at myself because this is really ridiculous. But as a child of God, he can say, well, I... I'm, I'm, I don't eat that. And Mike would say, well, why not? Like, we're all eating rock badger. Why aren't you a rock badger? And he says, because I'm one of God's children. And Mike says, well, that's really interesting. Tell me about that, right? You instant witness, instant conversation. And God made it really easy. Now, part of what Christians sort of steer, when you start reading these things, if you've, if you've read the New Testament, you understand that uh, Jesus, there's a story in, in Mark where Jesus says, hey, listen, the problem isn't that you guys are eating. Like, if you eat something, uh, if you eat rock badger and stink bugs, like, your mouth is unclean, even though your wife might not want to kiss you, I, I, you know. Um, but it isn't what goes inside of you, but it's really what's coming out of you. Like, if, if you think you're a child of God because you're not eating rock badger, but you're constantly berating your children, talking down to your wife, and being cruel to your neighbors, your heart's impure. It doesn't matter what you're eating if what's coming out of you is wicked. And that's what God's after. And, 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 then, and then Mark gives this, this, little, this little explanation, and he says, In this way, Jesus made all foods clean. Therefore, if Mike is serving rock badger, you may eat the rock badger as a Christian. Which means that we have this sense of separation from these ancient texts, these lists right here, which don't seem applicable to us. The practice doesn't match our experience or the practices of the Christian today. And therefore, we think, well, forget about it. We can just sort of move on. But that's the problem. Because all of these practices pull into here. And we begin to ask questions, maybe questions that I've never heard asked in a sermon before. And that is, how does what you eat and what you drink reflect your allegiance to God. Because that's what this is all about, right? This is, this is why he's shaping these people. He is giving them things. And this is one of the interesting things about the ancient world. The ancient world didn't have nicely lined up maps with nicely laid out military bases that if you crossed this border, they'd send a tomahawk missile and smash you with it, right? They lived on allegiance. You knew you were in, the next, in another country when you went into town and you said, well, who's the king here? And they said, well, it's this king. And you're like, well, that's not my king, so this must be one of those places of border. They operated on that level, on that level of allegiance. And so what's happening here is God is, he, he is outlining the people based upon this here. And so one of the things we know archaeologically that this territory we call Israel, you know what is not there? Pig bones. You know what's all around them? Denny's and bacon strips. Inside of Israel, it marked them. It set them apart. It showed the people that there was a God in Israel, and that God has commanded the people, we are not to eat these things. And so the people abstain from these things. Why? Because those things are inherently evil and bad? No, because it represented their declaration of allegiance to the Lord their God. Now the issue remains for Christians. 
In fact, what's interesting is if we go forward into the New Testament, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there's a similar issue. Mike's having a barbecue again. Mike Zimmerman, always barbecuing. And this time, he killed the rock badger. You're never going to forget rock badgers now. He kills the rock badger as a part of the worship of Zeus, his god. And it was a part of the worship service in the morning. And in the evening, you know, there's rock badger left over. And so he invites his friends over. We're going to finish up the rock badger and we'll eat together. Now, uh, Travis isn't worried about going to the worship service. He's not doing that. He's a Christian. But can he eat rock badger that has been sacrificed to Zeus in the morning? Already you're like, what does this have to do with anything? It doesn't. Because we don't have that problem, do we? Do, do we? Do any of your neighbors? That's not a problem. But Paul's application and question and answer to that problem is the heart of the matter. And it is this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That is the principle that drives the identity that expands the worldview. And these things roll back and forth. Your practices will shape your identity, which will shape your worldview. Your worldview will shape your identity, which will shape your practices. And what Paul gives us is the worldview and identity. And then he turns us loose to be creative. To be creative in the power of the Spirit, and to begin asking the questions ourselves. How does everything in my life direct my friends, neighbors, and enemies to see that Jesus is my Lord, even what I eat and drink? Is that a question or discussion that you've ever had in a group of Christians? What a fascinating thing to begin to think about how everything from the morsel of food that I put in my mouth to where I go to what I say to who I marry, to how I marry, to what marriage looks like, to what jobs I work and what jobs I don't work. See, the problem with, I think, the church is that we are forgetting that every ounce of our lives, every moment and practice and instance, every breath that we take is both gift and responsibility. It is gift and responsibility. God has given you so much. And he's called you to be responsible with it. To echo it back. So that the world will see Jesus Christ through you. Even in what you eat and what you drink. So your question is of course in mind. All right, Jordan. What should we eat or drink? Well not rot badger because that's gross. That's just a suggestion. But what's interesting about the New Testament is there's not a reduplicated, somebody help me here, reduplicated, there we go, list. We don't have a new list. That's a thousand times harder than a new list, isn't it? And what, what does that mean then? If we don't have a list, but rather Paul says, listen, you have the spirit of the living God in you. You have the conviction of the living God in you. You have a God who is in you and around you within the community of faith. And he says, why don't you guys use the spirit you've been given and begin to think for yourself? 
And that's so much more difficult and so much cooler because it unleashes us to be a people who are creative and calling others to see the way we live our lives in new ways and in new contexts. So the issue for Paul, as we read or we talked about, isn't the issue for Deuteronomy 2,000 years before. The principle, the worldview, the identity is the same. And wherever you sit, wherever it is that you find your, we find ourselves, whether we're talking about, you know, work or or home or, or the culture that we find in, those same questions and struggles exist. The answer, though, has to come from this principle. Our worldview, our identity being shaped. So, I'm not giving you an answer. <laughs> I want to give you a principle, uh, two principles really quick. This is principles to, to engage as you read Deuteronomy because I pray that you will read Deuteronomy uh, ahead of time and that as we come together each week we can talk about, because there's a lot of content in Deuteronomy and we can't preach through it all, we can't talk about all of it, but we're going to do our best. So there's going to be things that kind of get left behind um, and I want you to experience that. So I pray that you will read it. And as you read it, I, I ask that you would engage these two principles. The first one is this. How is this forming God's people? So what you're going to get is the practices. Here's a big list of things you don't eat. And you could say, well, all right, that doesn't apply to me anymore. Moving on and reading something else. No, ask the question. Why did God write that? Why for 3,300 years have we been rewriting it and handing it off to our children. What does it say about the people God is trying to form? And then begin to move it towards yourself and begin to ask the question, if I, not necessarily didn't eat rock badger, but begin to think, well, what would it look like for a Christian to eat differently than a non-Christian? What a fascinating question. What kind of ethics would guide what I eat and what I drink, where I eat and where I drink, who I eat and drink with? That we might become a spiritually minded and creative people who are not only practicing the things of God, but recognizing that our identity is in God and allowing all of that to shape the worldview so that we can encounter the world as agents of grace, as agents of gift, and as agents of responsibility. So that the principle maintains And people look and say there is a God in Israel. There is a God at Oakland Drive Christian Church because these people are a little different. And I see in their difference a prior allegiance, a higher calling, calling that even what they eat is different than me. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. One of my favorite passages as we close that really highlights this transition, this, this amazing opportunity that we've been given through Jesus Christ, this transformation of worldview, identity, and practice uh, is in Colossians 1. And the whole band can come on up. I'm going to read this and, 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 we'll, and we'll be done. And you can hear, as I read this, I want you to listen for, listen for worldview, listen for identity, and listen for practices. 
And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him and bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in a knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of our sins. How will everything you do this week, whether it's eating or drinking or going or staying, sleeping or walking, driving or working, how will everything this week point you toward your primary allegiance in Jesus Christ our Lord and act as a witness for others to see God's light and grace, his gift and responsibility? Let's stand as we sing this last song.